Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome into the Jeff Andrea Show here on Friday, January the 10th. And thank you, as always, for tuning in. Man, this is uh, day five, five days in a row of being at work. <laughs> I love my job, so it's not a complaint, but I'll say it almost feels weird working five days in a row right now with uh, New Year's last week to break things up. We had the Christmas break the week before that to give us a couple of days off. I had some vacation time earlier in December to, to head down to Edmonton and see some friends, so it's just uh, it's been a while since I had to work a regular five-day work week, and uh, well, really the reason I'm bringing this up is, uh, well, if you haven't heard the news, Finland is apparently thinking about a shortened work week. Prime Minister uh, Sanna Mary has welcomed debate on a four-day work week, calling it an interesting question that's worth looking into. She says employees deserve some of the trickle-down benefits of improved productivity. So the young 34-year-old PM has denied reports, though, that it was planning to drastically cut working hours. Marin is quoted as saying, Until now, the trend has been towards shorter working hours as productivity has increased. She believes that in the future, though not in the next few years, the development will be similar improvements in productivity and technology, which should show up as improvements in the conditions for ordinary workers, including shorter working hours. So it is then noted, though, that the Finnish government is not currently working on a four-day work week. That's why I stated earlier the country is thinking about it with no actual plans to go ahead with cutting regular working hours at this time. Now, if they were to cut back to a four-day work week or even a six-hour workday, as some have out there stated, what would that mean for the economy? Well, the uh, new economic foundation says shorter working hours without a loss in pay offers a way to tackle symptoms of overwork, providing people with more time to recuperate, participate in democratic processes, and fulfill caring responsibilities. So those sound like nice benefits to people who do have very busy daily lives. And then the one point in particular about participating in the democratic process, um, you know, as an outlet that deals with with a lot of politics at all levels of government. I do believe that that is something that more people need to be paying attention to and taking part in. And if we had more spare time, there would be less excuse not to participate in democracy. But what about when it comes to the cost of doing business? Surely that would be worse, right? That would cost a lot more to have a, a shorter work week. Well, there is research that does suggest the benefits of a four-day working week without loss of pay can outweigh the cons for both businesses and staff. A survey shows that among those that have already adopted the four-day working week that they were making savings of around 2% of total turnover each year. Uh, 51% of respondents to this third survey thought that the four-day work week enabled them to save costs. Of those, 62% say their staff take fewer days off sick, 63% say the product they, they produce better work quality, and 64% are more productive. And research also outlines that the businesses who haven't yet implemented a four-day work week could save around $12 billion, or pounds, excuse me, this is a British study, uh, by moving to, uh, to, to one four-day work week. Now, examples of this four-day work week include Microsoft in Japan. It conducted a trial four-day work week in the summer of last year, granting workers paid leave on Fridays. At the same time, it cut the length of most meetings from a full hour to a half hour and capped attendance at five employees. And for the duration of that trial, the company reported a 40% increase in productivity and a 23% reduction in electricity costs. So there are clearly stats out there showing that it could be a positive thing uh, when it comes to people's mental health, but also when it comes uh, to company pocketbooks. So I'll be watching what happens in Finland. It's clearly not imminent, but it is uh, clearly a discussion that is being had, not only in Finland, but, uh, you know, kind of that seems to be the launching point for a number of people here to, to at least think of this as a subject of discussion. Now, with all that said...
what is on tap for today's show. Well, in the back half, I will be revisiting a conversation I had yesterday with Ben Parfit of the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives. He released a report yesterday which called for an immediate ban on fracking activities near BC's Hydro Peace River dams. So uh, there was a uh, report there um, yesterday, like I had said, from the CCPA, and BC Hydro is uh, speaking out today. Uh, well, they actually spoke out with Brett Manier yesterday on NL Newsday, so I'm going to be playing a little bit of that conversation as it pertains to, uh, or it is a response to what I aired here yesterday. So that'll be coming up at around uh, 9.35. And then to end off today's show, well, what happens to our most vulnerable now that we are looking at colder weather? Well, here's Environment Canada's Bobby Saycone looking at what is in store for us when it comes to dropping temperatures in the Kamloops area here in the coming days. Right now, our mid-range models are predicting colder than normal temperatures for most of BC, kind of into the third week of January. So this cold may be sticking around for a while. There could be fluctuations here and there. However, it should be pretty cold uh, right through to uh, almost the last week of January. So with that in mind, where do those on the streets go for shelter and how often are they taking advantage of those services that are available? Well, I will be joined by the city's project manager of housing and homelessness to talk about that and just how much those services have been used so far this winter. We haven't seen some of the extreme temperatures yet that we do have coming up in the next uh, little while here looking just at the forecast briefly. Sunday night, low of minus 21. Monday night, minus 26. And then uh, looking even further ahead, the highs on Tuesday Wednesday, Thursday, don't get above minus 14, minus 15, minus 16. So, yeah, some cold weather definitely on the way. And combine that with the fact that we're going to have a lot of snowy weather here over the course of this weekend. It, uh, it looks like we are really in the thick of winter. I mean, we are pretty much in mid-January here, so I guess that is to be expected. Coming up next, the BC Coroner Service has a new partnership with an art academy in New York. There are many cold cases in the province, people who have not been identified for a variety of reasons. Uh, sometimes maybe only a skull has been found of an individual. Well, what can be done in order to ID the body or ID the victim? How can they tell what the face of this person might look like? Well, artists are helping to do just that, and I will be joined by identification specialist Laura Yazegin to talk more about this program after this. So stick around. Opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Jeff Andreas on RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome back to the Jeff Andreas Show and thanks so much for tuning in here today. Uh, the BC Coroner Service is looking to put a face to some old cold cases and it has partnered with a New York Academy of Art in order to go about doing this. So here to talk about this program and sort of what the goals are is Coroner Identification Specialist with the BC Coroner Service, Laura Yazegin. Laura, thanks so much for taking the time here. Thank you for having me. So, yeah, let me just start, I guess, by kind of getting a rundown of why, um, you know, this was decided, why this partnership kind of took place. So this isn't the, the first year of this partnership, from what I understand, but, um, you know, why, why are these, um, what, what exactly is this entailing? Let's start with that. So you're sending away some skulls to New York, and then there these this Academy of Art is sort of helping to, to put faces to these skulls, right? They are. What we're actually sending away to New York is... Uh, 3D printed models of the skulls. So it's not the actual skulls which are going. We had uh, um, scientists come out from the National Research Council in Ottawa and who brought his 3D scanning equipment and made these fantastic detailed um, renditions of the skulls which then 
the data was sent back to Ottawa and they printed them um, at the National Research Council there in order to be able to take the models down to New York. And and why New York? Is there a reason why it has to go there? Is that just somewhere where they can do this kind of work? Or, or is, you know, I'm just curious as to how come New York was the, the location picked for this? Well, in fact, New York, I believe, came forward to the National Center on Missing Persons okay. and Unidentified Remains in Ottawa, the RCMP there. And um, I was attending a forum in Ottawa on missing persons and unidentified remains at the time when a, one of their forensic artists there did a presentation on the school and how they had been used to do reconstructions for the unidentified skulls that they had at the New York City Medical Examiner's Office because the I believe the person who teaches the course does the reconstructions for the Medical Examiner's Office there. And they, the program, I guess, has been so successful that they ran out of skulls to reconstruct in New York and were looking for other cases to work on for their next uh, batch of students. So this obviously was uh, something that you felt was a good opportunity for, for some of these cold cases here in BC to, I guess, put a face to, to some of the uh, the victims of, of uh, you know, crimes or whatever the case may be. Some some faces that people might not have been able to uh, to see before, right, when we're talking about uh, human remains, and maybe they can put a name then to that face. I guess that's kind of the point here, right, is so they can do some reconstruction, figure out what a person might have looked like, and then hopefully we can see some uh, people ID'd as a result of that. That is exactly what we hope will happen. And this has been a fantastic opportunity for us because we have done reconstructions on kind of a case-by-case basis when we have particularly high-profile cases, usually homicides, which uh, we've been unable to resolve. And But uh, we've never done anything on a scale like this. you know. And most of these cases, uh, a lot of them we actually don't know the circumstances surrounding the individual's death because all that was found was a skull mm-hmm. or you know they were found so long after that they died that any evidence we have from the scene was you know either removed or contaminated or just lost basically um, and some of these cases are really old the oldest case that we've sent out to them was from 1972 Wow, so that's going back quite a ways. Um, how many cases, I guess, uh, you know, are, are uh, potentially going to be benefited from this? I guess, what is the number of cold cases that are kind of on your file? I don't even know if you can answer that question, but, um, you know, I, I assume there's a, probably a, a significant number here that this could potentially um, aid in, in helping. Absolutely. Well, I here in BC, we have 179 um, unidentified, basically cold case human remains files and these actually date back to 1953 it's our oldest file okay um not all of those cases are suitable for reconstructions some of them don't have skulls Uh, some of them are for example only a femur which was found one bone Um, some of them that what was found was very partial so there's not enough of the cranium or the face for example to be reconstructed so um out of the ones that we had available we chose basically the best ones that were in the best condition to send out we scanned 15 cases um and i believe all of those are going to new york i understand that there's a couple also from um nova scotia okay perhaps um or from the maritimes anyway um but you know we do have 
a number of other cases which would be suitable. So I'm, I'm really hoping that this project is going to be something that can be repeated in the future. Um, we have a, a few cases where we know um, we just don't have physical access to the remains because back in the day in the 70s and 80s before DNA was, you know, on the radar, a lot of these unidentified cases were just buried in cemeteries and they're buried around the province. And we're working on um, a project now to exhume as many of these unidentified cases as we can for which we don't have DNA profiles. And a lot of those cases will be suitable also for a reconstruction, which would really help to be able to get the, you know, get the stories out there, get the information mm -hmm. about these people out there so that, yeah, hopefully someone will be able to recognize them and call in a tip for someone that they didn't realize it had been missing for this long. Right. Yeah, it, it, I think it's a really neat project and just, uh, you know, a lot of people are probably wondering out there, you know, what happened to so-and-so to and, -so and maybe they have been missing for a certain amount of time and, and hopefully if they, they see a face that they recognize that I can help put a, uh, a bit of an ending, I guess, to those those types of stories. I'm just curious as well, too. I mean, I've seen situations that are kind of like this when talking about, you know, 2D, um, you know, maybe making a, a picture of what someone might look like. Um, do you have any idea how, I guess, this would be more effective or different from from doing a 2d image like this is being a 3d image um does that do you think make it make a big difference or a big um uh change in how um, you know things are reconstructed uh, just, just curious if there is like uh, you know if you've looked at 2d models versus 3d models and if if one may be more successful than the other or or more accurate or um you know anything along those lines that's actually probably a better question for the artists actually yeah. um just because that you know my area of expertise is with is with the remains and the bones, and Fair. Fair I don't enough. have that artistic background to know. You know, there's definitely science behind what they're doing, but part of it is, you know, the artistic impression from from what the artist is doing and how they are kind of bringing this face together. Um, and you know, it, it is quite different when you have a sketch versus a kind of photorealistic 2D rendition and the and the 3d one but i think you know from my point of view i think it's maybe easier to recognize someone from a model than it is from just a photo mm -hmm. i heard like just a sketch i'm not sure um but you know we don't know right now what what is more yeah, or less yeah. effective because this is really the first time we're doing something on on this scale like this Fair enough. I just thought uh, it was worth asking. Um, I'll get you out of yeah. here on this, I guess, too, just in terms of a time frame, because you know you're hoping to see some results as uh, uh, come come from this project. And and um, do you have any ideas, sort of, when you might see these models returned or or get the uh, you know the, get get the model back and, and be able to put it out to the public and see if anyone recognizes these individuals? Do you have any idea what that time frame looks like? Well, I think getting the images out is going to be different from getting the models back. Uh, the images. From what I understand, they do kind of like a, you know, kind of grand unveiling at the end of the um, week that the students are doing the reconstructions. So that will be a chance to actually get images of all of these reconstructions. And we'll be working together with uh, the National Center for mm -hmm. Missing Persons and Unidentified Remains in order to make sure that we get these reconstructions up on the, the Canada's Missing website and also up. Uh, linked to our unidentified human remains viewer, which we have hosted on the BC Map Hub here. So it just, it, 
in able to get you know these out to as many people as possible and i'm sure when that happens we'll also be it'll be out on social media and yeah. trying to trying to get the word out which is that's what helps with with these sort of cases yeah. now you know now they go stuff goes around the world which not just your local newspaper, which is fantastic. Yeah, and it can potentially get out there pretty quick, too. I know it's, uh, you know, when talking about these kinds of things, it's always a matter of um, how quickly the, the images get out, and you never know how long it could take someone to, to see a picture and be able to identify someone. But, um, yeah, I was just curious how long these models potentially could take to, to actually produce. Um, anyway, yeah, no, there's some good information here. I think it's a really neat and interesting project, and uh, hopefully some of these cold cases can be solved as a result. Uh, I'm looking forward to following up on this at some point and, and just seeing what the results results actually are. So um, thanks so much for doing this, Laura. I really appreciate your time. No, you're very welcome. I, that's, all, that's all I hope to is that we can finally get some resolution for some people who've been missing their loved ones for, you know, years or decades. Mm -hmm, for sure. Well, Laura, thanks again. I, I really appreciate this and uh, enjoy the rest of your day. You're welcome. Thank you. That was Identification Specialist with the BC Coroner Service, Laura Yazegin. Uh, I saw a few pictures from those working on these uh, recreations. I have to see it's a bit of a neat process to see, you know, how they're putting clay over top of these 3D models and sort of mold them into what someone, you know, may have looked like. I do wonder, though, when you look at, uh, you know, these recreations with the, whether it be 2D images or 3D models, you know, just how they would know what the person uh, might have, you know, maybe weighed at the time because obviously that would impact what your appearance might look like or, or if someone, you know, had dimples or these little details that, you know, could make a difference for someone who sees the image and maybe just can't put their finger on an ID of who that might be right away, um, you know, because they're missing those those tiny little things that may have been a part of their, um, you know, facial appearance. But, I mean, they clearly have some reasons for putting together these images and how they go about doing so. So I will have to find an artist to speak to how they go about uh, finding what those minute details are and, and putting them into their actual models. So that'll be a, an interesting discussion. Hopefully I can have at some point in the future. Coming up after the break, I had Ben Parfit from the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives on to talk about a report released yesterday calling for an immediate ban on all fracking activities close to BC Hydro's two existing Peace River dams, as well as the Site C Dam construction project until a full public inquiry determines whether comprehensive bans are warranted. Well, I received an email from uh, BC Hydro yesterday saying they wanted to respond, so I'm going to be looking at that after this, so stay tuned. to Jeff Andreas on Radio NL 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome back to the Jeff Andreas Show here on Friday, January 10th. Thanks as always for joining me. On my show yesterday, I spoke with Ben Parvid, who is a policy analyst with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, who released a report calling for an immediate ban on fracking activities close to BC Hydro's two existing Peace River dams, as well as the Site C Dam construction project until a full public inquiry determines whether a comprehensive ban is warranted. Well, Parfit put together the report following an extensive review of hundreds of documents that he obtained through a Freedom of Information request. So those documents show that BC Hydro's Peace Canyon Dam could fail in the aftermath of an earthquake triggered by fracking operations. Here's a snippet from my conversation yesterday uh, with Mr. Parfit. BC Hydro very clearly uh, had grave reservations and the FOI record that I've obtained shows that their senior legal counsel in um, December of 2018 was telling the Oil and Gas Commission unequivocally that BC Hydro did not want any fracking operations or any disposal well operations anywhere near its Peace Canyon Dam or its other Peace River dams. The really interesting thing about this uh, FOI package is that BC Hydro said that 
earthquakes of a magnitude in the 4 to 4.5 range could damage the Peace Canyon Dam. And the significance of that is that we now know that the largest earthquake ever induced by a fracking operation occurred in the state of Oklahoma in 2011 and triggered a 5.7 magnitude earthquake, which releases 53 times the energy of a magnitude 4.5. So the scientific record on this is very clear. Fracking can uh, trigger significant earthquakes. Now, looking at those comments, it's clear to see why a concern might exist, right? If fracking can produce a 5.3 magnitude earthquake and the, the current uh, uh, structure that is in place over a Peace River could be a jeopardy between four and four and a half, um, you know, then there's obviously some concern about what could happen should a fracking activity, uh, you know, induce some sort of uh, seismic activity uh, in the ground around there. Obviously, that uh, you know those two numbers correlate pretty easily. But BC Hydro Director of Dam Safety, Dr. Bob Schubeck, he says, while there are currently no fracking activities taking place in close proximity to the two existing dams in the Peace region, those being the WAC Bennett Dam and the Peace River Canyon Dam. So there's no current threat to dam infrastructure because, of course, there are no fracking activities taking place. Well, host of NL Newsday, Brett Minear, caught up with Dr. Schubeck yesterday. So here's a little bit of their conversation starting with the question, has BC Hydro warned the government in the past that any kind of fracking activities should not take place near those dams, as Ben Parfit has suggested in his report? Well, there have been communications between BC Hydro and the Oil and Gas Co Commission, of, of course. Um, and, you know, I think it's important to uh, bear in mind that a lot of the documents that Mr. Parfit is r referencing are, are once from you know many many years ago um, mm -hmm. you know almost a decade or in some cases more and uh, at a time when we really had uh, a much less clear understanding of the impacts of, of fracking uh, of the geology of the area uh, I'm speaking about BC Hydro's understanding um, and uh, you know we, we, we raised concerns because we needed to get some answers that we we didn't have at the time uh, in fact, um, back in, oh gosh, the year may be evading me now, 2013-2014, um, there was uh, a license um, in, uh, in place for uh, uh, what's called a wastewater injection well uh, near our Peace Canyon Dam, where wastewater from fracking operations would be injected and, and, and stored there. Mm -hmm. And uh, those wells have had uh, histories of, of causing small to moderate earthquakes. And, um, and we did raise concerns at that time. Uh, through the interactions with the Oil and Gas Commission, quite a number of, uh, of conditions were placed on that operator uh, before they could begin any injection operations. And to date, those, op those um, conditions haven't been met. And to our understanding, the owner of that facility hasn't even begun to uh, address those. Mm. Um, so there, there are no activities uh, underway, and um, and we are um, uh, actually the owner is uh, that operator is obliged to uh, inform us of any activities that that are underway, and finally. Um, you know, if we if we encounter any circumstances at the Peace Canyon Dam where we believe the stability of the dam has been compromised for one reason or, or another, um, there is a condition on on that operator as well that we inform them that uh, 
the stability has been compromised for whatever reason and they are to cease operations immediately. Are you able to uh, tell me a little bit about how uh, these dams are uh, monitored and what type of systems are in place to keep tabs on them? There's an extensive uh, set of instruments and, um, and program of inspections on, on all of our dams and, and particularly our major dams like WAC Bennett and Peace Canyon. Um, you know, our dam safety program is, is recognized worldwide as, as a, a leader um, amongst dam owners. And, um, and that program is comprised of uh, weekly inspections of our dams, uh, continuous 24-hour surveillance of all the instrumentation on them, and that instrumentation adds up into the thousands on those two dams. Um, and uh, a series of uh, our program of investigations that we undertake regularly to assess the, the performance of, of the dam. Um, and their ability to resist uh, typical day-to-day uh, -day loads as well as extreme um, rare loads like uh, major floods and earthquakes. Mm -hmm. uh, on top of that, we, uh, we have every, every number of years, five years for Bennett's Dam and every 10 years for Peace Canyon Dam, uh, independently conducted uh, safety reviews of our dams. Uh, those reviews were last conducted in 2018 by uh, an internationally recognized firm from New Zealand. And uh, at that time, they found both of Peace Canyon and W.C. Bennett dams to be safe. Um, and as a matter of fact, um, that review also considered the question of oil and gas operations in, in proximity to our dams. And, and their findings were that uh, BC Hydro has demonstrated a, a I'm going to use quotes here, a proactive and a responsible approach uh, to um, dealing with the hazards uh, that may be presented by oil and gas exploration. So we're very confident of the, of the safety of those two dams. And, um, and our continuing dam safety program um, bears that out. Um, how big of an earthquake, I mean, theoretically, does it take to, to bust a dam? <laughs> That's a great question. Yeah. Um, you know, in, in, in general terms, that, that varies with how important the dam is and what right. the consequences of its failure would be. For, you know, our, our major dams on, on the Peace River, if we were to build and design them today, um, you know, like we're doing with Site C, we'd, we would design those dams to resist an earthquake, well, resist earthquake ground motions that we would mm -hmm. expect to occur once only every 10,000 years. So right. a very extreme, a very rare event. That's, and that's getting certainly the case. Eight and eight and eight and higher type of uh, magnitudes. Well, we don't really talk about magnitudes when we're doing engineering design of, of dams or any other structure. Okay. Magnitudes are um, only one uh, component of uh, of the um, inputs to determining what the ground motions are going to be. We look right. at the severity of the ground motions themselves. Okay. Um, so you know, Site C is being designed to that that standard. Uh, WAC Bennett and Peace Canyon dams were of course built in the 1960s and 70s and that was in a period when we had some you know different understandings and, and standards related to seismic design mm -hmm. um, but that notwithstanding those dams uh, can still both uh, resist a, quite a, a large um, magnitude of, of earthquake ground motion 
um, and we expect that those dams would survive um, earthquake ground motions that would occur naturally once every four to five thousand years. So still quite significant. You know, one of the big differences between a natural earthquake and a fracking earthquake is how long it goes on for. Mm-hmm. So you know the fracking earthquakes that you know that have been encountered um, in the in the Peace region and elsewhere tend to be of very short duration, you know two seconds, right? Something in that order. Whereas natural earthquakes that you know we're concerned about when we're designing our dams would go on for the strong motions would go on for 15 to 20 seconds and in mm-hmm. higher seismic regions perhaps in the order of a minute or more. Yeah. So you know a, a very big difference in terms of the demands placed on the dam. Um, the it, it really takes quite a, a, a duration of shaking to actually displace the dam to cause the kinds of failures we get you know we would get concerned about. Well, now I got to ask you this: if the uh, CCPA are maybe just using you guys as a tool to push for a fracking ban, I mean, are you guys sort of an innocent third party kind of caught in the middle here? <laughs> well, that's. Uh, <laughs> That's a question. I'm not sure if I can if I can speak to the. Oh, come on, let's well, let's let's make some news here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I I can only really talk to you about um, you know about the state of our dams. Um, you know, they they are constantly monitored. They're well maintained. They are upgraded on a regular basis. You know, we, we in fact do have plans to bring those two dams up to uh, various aspects of those two dams up to you know current and the most current and modern standards um, that we have anywhere in the province. And, and those projects are in the books for later in the 2020s. There you go. That was uh, Dr. Bob Schubach, BC Hydro's Director of Dam Safety. So he was responding to Ben Parfit's report, policy analyst with the CCPA, calling for an immediate ban of fracking activities up in the, the Peace region there. And, and uh, you know, Dr. Schubach uh, maybe refuting those comments a little bit. You know, uh, in, in Parfit's report, it speaks to a, a certain magnitude of earthquake that could cause dam failures, where, whereas... Um, Schubach is saying that maybe the, the number, the actual magnitude is, is less of an issue and it's more about the actual ground um, and, and, and what happens, uh, you know, underneath as opposed to the actual magnitude itself. So, um, you know, there's, there's a couple of different sides out there. You can uh, log on to radio.l.com slash podcast, hear the full interview with uh, Ben Parfit, and then uh, you can also hear all of uh, uh, Brett Manier's interview with uh, Bob Schubach. So uh, feel free to take a listen and, uh, yeah, see both sides of the story. Coming up after the break, it is getting cold out there. Temperatures expected to dip below minus 20 starting this Sunday night. What does that mean for our homeless population and how do they stay warm and more importantly alive when the weather is cold? Well, I will be joined by the city's project manager of housing and homelessness after this. Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome back to the Jeff Andreas Show and thanks so much for tuning in here today. Uh, We've seen some uh, different weather here over the last little while. Lots of snow, some colder temperatures appear to be on their way here too over the coming days. What does that mean for the cities less fortunate, those who are out on the streets? I mean, do they have to deal with with these conditions or what kind of supports are available for them here in the city of Kamloops? Well, I'm joined now in studio by the project manager for the city uh, with housing and homelessness. It's Ty Helgeson. Ty, thanks so much for coming in. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so, I mean, just, can you talk a little bit about just the, the, in a general sense, I mean, what happens when we're looking at days that are, you know, colder than normal, some snowy conditions, and, you know, obviously it's not really safe for people to be spending the night on the streets. So, um, you know, how active is the city when it comes to trying to help these people find uh, a warm place to sleep? Absolutely, yeah. The city's role in 
uh, trying to find a place for those people to sleep is just kind of matching opportunities out in the community, um, working with our partners in the community to find um, maybe people who have facilities without operations or maybe they have a program without a facility to run them out of. Uh, our role is really just as a conduit to help build that relationship so that maybe um, we can bring more services to our community. So uh, when people are, like, like people who are on the street now, are they fairly well aware of the services that are available to them? Or, or you know, are you guys out there kind of educating people so they know sort of what, what is available? Yes, yeah, so there's, um, within the city we have a coordinated access table. Um, we're a large group of representatives from different social serving agencies in the community meet. Um, and we discuss the people that are out on the streets and are experiencing difficult times um, and how we can get them better connected with the services that are available. And then from that, we can advise the uh, street outreach workers who are out there uh, really spreading the word on the streets. So when you're talking to individuals, I mean, do you do sort of maybe an assessment on a case-by-case -case basis? Like, are there a lot of different services for people depending on their certain individual situations, whether it be, you know, mental health issues or, or addiction issues? Like, are there different places for people to go depending on their situation? Absolutely, yeah. There's, there's a variety of services available in Kamloops. Um, in an ideal world for our coordinated access table, we would have all of those services at the table, but um, depending on what people need uh, right now we can help people uh, get into permanent social supported housing we can get people into shelter housing um, we have some abstinent based housing we have some low barrier housing uh, as well as additional supports outside of housing what what do the um, numbers look like in terms of capacity do you have any idea how full some of these um, you know uh, overnight shelters i guess would be uh, on some of these colder nights are they typically pretty full for sure yes yeah. so on one of these colder nights, if there's somebody on the street who is seeking refuge from this winter weather, um, the process they would go through, the primary point of contact for them would be the Emerald Center um, down on West Victoria Street. Uh, they have 55 beds available, and if they were all full, then the client would be directed to go up the street to the Mustard Seed. Um, the Mustard Seed isn't traditionally a sheltering agency. But for the winter, they've really stepped up in the community and they're providing uh, 30 mats right now. So um, through December, out of the 30 mats, they saw an average of 21 clients. So the services are well utilized, but definitely not overwhelmed at this time. Um, and they did see two nights at full capacity as well. Okay, so there is a, a times out there where people are, um, you know, in desperate need and are, you know, what was that, 80 some, I can't, didn't do the math off the top of my head. 85 there, but total. 85 beds that uh, were at least full on a couple of occasions. So sure. definitely a significant issue. Um, when, when talking about Kamloops itself, because I'm coming from a community like I moved in the summer from Northern Ontario and we had nights that would get to, you know, minus 30, minus 40 with windshield. We don't see those type of extremes here. Um, so what is the worry, I guess, for those out on the street? I mean, do we see more people willing um, to you know try to tough it out on colder nights because it doesn't get to these extremes? I mean, there's obviously always the concern when it comes to, you know, health and safety, and we don't want people dying on the streets. I don't know if that's been a concern here in Kamloops. Has, has there been issues where, where that might ha potentially happen? I mean, it's, it's always a concern, uh, and we never want to see people out on the streets. Uh, but being that it is a, a milder climate here, um, 
I'm not on the front lines working, but what I've heard anecdotally in these meetings and at coordinated access uh, is that some of the clientele does decide that uh, rather than dealing with some of the rules and things like that, they do choose to try to tough it out on the streets. Um, and it, it just is good to know that there are sheltering agencies out there that, that will take them in if it, if it gets too difficult. Yeah, so again, I guess it just comes down to educating those individuals who, who need these services and, and hopefully make them aware that you know they are available and they they don't have to be afraid to use them i guess right Definitely. Is, is that something that you think might be common for some individuals is maybe just they're too proud to to try to use some of these uh, you know options that are available to them it, it it is hard for me to say not being a person with that lived experience of homelessness um but that's why it's a, a really positive thing that we are seeing more um a mix of low barrier housing as well as abstinence-based housing uh, hopefully so that we can engage some of those clients that don't want um, so many barriers to their housing. Right. Um, I think that's pretty much it. One more question I did want to ask you, Ty, while I had you in here is just, you know, when people are uh, taking advantage of these overnight shelters and, and are spending a night inside to stay warm, which is obviously good, keeps them protected, keeps them off the street and in danger of any, um, you know, climate-related illnesses or, or whatever might arise as a result. But when they are there, I mean, is it, it kind of provides an opportunity for some face-to-face -face interaction with, with some of the professionals that are, you know, kind of dealing with these clientele. Um, you know, do, is there a chance at all during these overnight stays for some assessment or for some one-on-one -on -one to see how people could uh, you know improve their lives and, and try to get off the street on a permanent basis because it seems like something that um, you know it's an opportunity that you might not, not always get right to have these face-to-face -face conversations and and having them stay overnight you know might provide a chance to to make them more aware definitely yeah it's a it's a great opportunity to um, have staff connect with them um, discuss potentially what their needs are for support and if they would even be interested in a permanent housing situation. Uh, and if they did express that interest, they can always take the vulnerability assessment test, uh, which is, we call it the VAT. Uh, and that's the first step to getting your name in the by name list of people experiencing homelessness in our community. Uh, and that list is the, the list that we discuss at coordinated access. So. We take those names from the by name list um, and we have vacancies in the community, uh, discuss people and, and they could potentially end up getting their housing through that process. Awesome. Yeah, I think that's a great program. Is there ever any difficulty, you know, once someone's name's on that list to actually contact them once, uh, you know, something does come up for them? Yeah, we, we have a great team here in Kamloops of outreach workers. They're usually uh, familiar with a lot of the clients, but uh, there are times where people are, are difficult to contact, uh, and in those times we just try to be as persistent as yeah. possible. Awesome. Well, Ty, thanks so much for uh, taking the time to come in. I think this is a, an important subject, and uh, yeah, hopefully people are not uh, spending the nights on the streets if they don't have to and are able to stay warm at night and stay safe. Thanks so much. Thank you. Awesome. That was Ty Helgeson, the Project Manager of Housing and Homelessness here at the City of Kamloops. Well, that about wraps things up for me here today. I would like to thank all my guests for joining me. And, of course, a big thank you to all of you for listening. And remember, whether you join me here for a short while or a long while, just know I enjoyed our time while it lasted. Have yourself a fantastic weekend. I'll be back here on Monday at 9.